Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us bow before our maker. Let us pray. O God, you are most glorious, and you began the creation on this first day. You began the creation bringing light out of darkness. And on the first day, you began your new creation, raising Jesus Christ out of the darkness of death. With Jesus Christ, there is a new creation, a new life, a new covenant, a new humanity. And we praise you for this. We gather this day to worship you. And we pray that you would be present with us by your spirit so that our praise may be joined with that praise in heaven and would be true and right and in your very presence because of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is the God of Abraham praise number 34.
proof of God's amazing love is this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Because we have faith in him, we dare to approach God with confidence. In faith and repentance, let us confess our sin before Almighty God with the prayer printed in the bulletin. Most holy and merciful Father, we acknowledge before you our sinful nature, which is prone to evil and slow to do good, as well as to confess all our shortcomings and offenses. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. We are ashamed and sorry for all wherein we have displeased you. Teach us to hate our errors, cleanse us from our secret faults, and forgive our sins for the sake of your dear Son. Help us to live in your light and walk in your ways according to the commandments of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Beloved of Christ, hear the good news and believe it. Now you have been set free from sin and have become servants of God, receiving righteousness and eternal life through Jesus Christ. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel, and we say together, praise be to God. Beloved children of God, once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is a shame even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it is said, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the will of God for us in Jesus Christ. And let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 282, Lift Up, Lift Up Your Voices Now. And all he did and all he bare 
He gives us as our own to share and hope and joy and peace begin. For Christ has won and man shall win. O victor, aid us in the fight and lead through death to realms of light. We safely pass where thou hast trod in thee. We die to rise to God. Thy flock from sin and death set free. Glad alleluia's raised to Son and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let us bring our prayers together to our Father in heaven through the name of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You are to be feared with a reverent fear more than anyone, anything else, because you are the one true God, greater than all, our creator and our redeemer. And you have acted to stop the the mouths of the powers in this world. And in triumph, you imprison the disobedient powers that are unseen. We thank you that you have blessed us in Jesus Christ, for it is he who you have raised as Lord of all. And he has joined us in the flesh, and by his perfect sacrifice, we are reconciled to you. So in the good news of this gospel, we pray now with free tongues and confident hearts. Almighty God, we petition you that Christians everywhere would live faithfully because of Christ, and their suffering would be joined with his, and therefore be made holy in this world. We pray for Christians who have so often met hostility in many places, as we see today in Pakistan, Iran, Turkey, Syria, China, North Korea, Central America, and with churches in our own country. We pray you would not let chaos flood the Middle East, the Americas, the nations of Asia. By your grace, let not your church be discouraged or intimidated by those who reproach it. We also pray for the people in the cities of our country. We pray for your merciful hand to stop the violence there and the turning against each other. May the Christians be strong to answer those who question us about Jesus Christ and your salvation through him. And may we do so in love and with compassion. Hear our prayers for your church as it faces the hostility of this world. As the city of Nineveh repented, may those who fight against you come to renounce their disobedient ways and fear and love Jesus Christ. We pray for the churches in our presbytery. We remember Grace Covenant Church in Sheffield, Ontario, as they look for a pastor. Bless them to serve you and lead them as they deal with pastoral matters. And we pray for Bethel Reformed Church in Fremont and their pastor, Vern Picknally, and as he also moderates our presbytery. In addition, keep the church safe in Eritrea and Uganda and the OPC and its missionaries and associates in those places. You would keep them safe as well. Charles Jackson, James Fulkerts, Angela Vascule, and Tina DeYoung, among others. 
Help the church in its ministry of the gospel. Hear our prayers for our missionaries and their families and the churches of our presbytery. Merciful Father, we pray for your blessed people here at Providence Church. Encourage us by your word and spirit to live in the promise of Jesus Christ. Remind us that being baptized into Christ, our sins are washed away. And we pray for those who do struggle with temptation or are depressed in spirit or estranged from others. Hear our prayers. We pray for those who are grieving, ill, recovering, or need help. For Eduardo and Frida, for Terry and Jeff and Fawn, for the Kelly family, for Karen, Mrs. Mesner, Angie, Chris Barker, Phil, Tom, Jane, Susan, and others we name to you in silence. Give them good care, O Lord, our Savior, and strengthen their faith in you by your grace. Blessed are you, O Lord, for you have not forsaken us in our troubles, but you have visited us with comforts from above, and you have supported us with patience. You've turned us toward your will. You've sent us relief. Continue your mercy toward us and prosper the means which shall be used for the healing of those who are in need so that being restored to health of body and vigor of mind and cheerfulness of spirit, they may be able to go to your house to offer you their thanksgiving with great gladness and serve you all their days. And in this life, and in this life, O Lord, we pray you would prepare us. for our impending death. Make us to renounce what is evil and stop doing what is wrong as those who were raised in Christ's triumph over the world, the flesh, and the devil. To you who sits enthroned above the heavens and the earth, we make our intercessions in the power of the Spirit through Jesus Christ who abides with you, O Father, and who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord.
rise and join in our prayer for the Lord our God, giver of all the living, we entreat you to hold in these our gifts the pledge of our consecration to your service, and grant that now and at all times our gratitude to you may be as great as our need of your mercy. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please be seated. And please join in praying for the uh, illumination as we open God's word together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this gift of your word. And we thank you for giving us um, a time and place when uh, your word is readily available and can be freely read. We thank you for giving us minds to... Uh, not just read and superficially understand, but to deeply ponder and dwell upon it. We pray that by your Spirit, our our contemplation of your Word at all times, and especially uh, right now, um, that by your Spirit we would be blessed in that, and that to your glory we would come to know and understand you more. We pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Uh, Our first reading this morning, uh, there's a uh, typo in the bulletin. If you try to look up Isaiah 42, uh, you'll discover that there is not a 4226. So we are going to Genesis. So if you are uh, reading along with us, please turn to Genesis 42. And uh, we'll be reading Genesis 42, 26 through 38. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we have said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me, and take grain for the famine of your households, and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack, and when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. 
And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Our Psalter response this morning is from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say As for the saints in the land, they are excellent. They are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out, nor take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our epistle reading uh, comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Finally, our gospel reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say, there is no, who say there is, that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and, 
and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For, she, for the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham? and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. We've come back to the Gospel of Mark, and we are picking up where we left off before... Um, the time when the church celebrates Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and Pentecost. So we are coming back to this uh, passage, and I want to remind you briefly uh, about where we are. We're still with Jesus in Jerusalem around the temple where Jesus judged the Jewish leaders. Our text is another story of Jesus being confronted by a Jewish party known as the Sadducees. The conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders had not subsided, so it's still hot, and we see that uh, as we come to this story. The conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders continues through this section. It reached a climax when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Even before he entered Jerusalem, there was conflict with the Jewish leaders, but when he gets to Jerusalem, it intensifies. Jesus entered the city with the crowds on their way to celebrate the Feast of Passover, so we know that he's, he's not too far off from um, going to the cross. He entered Jerusalem and he cursed the fig tree that represented Israel because Israel did not bear the fruit of faith, prayer, and forgiveness according to Christ. Jesus disrupted the money changers and animal sellers in the court of the Gentiles in the temple, thus interrupting the activity of the sacrifices that was a significant act that he did. And yet the Lord's conflict with the Jewish leaders and his judgment is for salvation. Jesus' parable of the tenants in the vineyard brings his judgment to a head. It's very clear that, that his judgment, uh, that God's judgment is coming down on Israel if, if for those who reject Jesus. But it's made clear in that parable that it's part of God's purpose to expand his salvation to the Gentiles. So with his judgment, there comes out salvation. For their part, the Jewish leaders were against Jesus They did not believe he was the Son of God, and consequently they challenged his authority. Also, Mark tells us they were seeking to arrest him and put him to death. So it's it's intensified, and we're in the midst of that conflict. Now, the Sadducees were a party of the Jews. They were the Essenes, the scribes, um, Pharisees, different um, parties, and the Sadducees were one of those. They were tied, uh, very closely tied, into the political power of Judea. And along with power comes privilege. So they were very privileged because they were sharing in that power of of, um, Judea. Also, they were severe opponents of the Pharisees. So these two did not get along. Their conflict with Jesus, uh, Jesus gets kind of drawn into this conflict. 
And um, the conflict we should note with Jesus is a theological conflict. Now, we have um, these kinds of disputes today as well. And you know, as Christians, we we encounter these disputes. Or if you haven't personally encountered it, you hear it uh, often. One of the disputes in confrontations that often happens between Christians today or with two Christians today is with atheists. They believe there is no God. The Christian faith is superstitious and irrational according to atheistic arguments. I've been reading a book by Charles Chaput. In it, he refers to a cartoon on the Internet that shows a galaxy deep in space. You've probably seen these photographs of, of like from the Hubble spacecraft, you know, these photos of, of the deep space galaxy. And it's, it's vastly magnified. So in the cartoon, it's magnified. It's up close. And there's a sign in the galaxy pointing to a speck at the tail-shaped rim of the galaxy. And the sign reads, God's favorite planet. The words are simple and the meaning is clear. Here's what those religious simpletons believe in. They believe in a super fairy who cares about the pathetic concerns of intelligent microbes on a pinpoint of dust in an ocean of complexity. Only a fool could be so ignorant. Well, the atheists today are called new atheists because atheism is predates our modern era. However, there's very little that's new about them. Chapu points out that the substance of the new atheists, the substance of their arguments, goes back about 300 years to Voltaire and the French philosophies. The latest version of atheism offers almost nothing that's original. Modern atheists fail to see how their alleged refutations of the reality of God depend on their assumptions about who they think that the God of Christian theology is. So it sort of depends on their assumptions. Posturing as educated intellectuals, this is Chapu talking, posturing as educated intellectuals standing up for critical rationality against naive credulity. In fact, they demonstrate at length how little they know about intellectual matters directly relevant to their concerns. In other words, the God that the atheists debunk is not the God that Christianity worships. Listen to those who attack the Christian faith, like the Sadducees, and how they understand the God we worship, and very often you will not recognize the God that they're describing. So it's good to listen. Listen to our opponents. Listen to what they're saying. And, and think for a minute. Is that the God that Christianity, uh, you know, we believe in? To these kinds of attacks, we must say that's not the God of Christianity. So don't try to defend a God we don't believe in. Don't fall into that trap. It's very easy because it seems like, oh, I'm a Christian, and so whatever their accusation is or claim against Christianity is, therefore that they, you know, that must be what it's about. Well, no. Many times our opponents don't get it right. They haven't taken the time to really understand what Christianity is saying. So just because an opponent claims it's our God doesn't mean that he is our God. Jesus did not concede the God that the Sadducees assumed in their confrontation with Jesus. He doesn't concede to them on that point. Now, as I told you, the Sadducees were a Jewish faction in the days of Jesus. Their constituency was composed of high priestly families, high priestly Jewish families, and leading lay families in Jerusalem. Lay would be the non-ordained members of society, but, but the leading ones, the ones who were in power, the ones who were running things. This means they were wealthy 
and concerned with maintaining their power and position in society. And like most people who have power and positions in society, they tenaciously want to hold on to it. They were notorious for being arrogant, contemptuous, and harsh in administering justice. Josephus was a writer. He was a Jew, but he was a Roman citizen as well. And he was a writer in the first century who describes the Sadducees in one of his writings as argumentative and distrusting of anything new. The Sadducees regarded only the, written, the law written in the Torah, in other words, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They only considered those writings as uh, binding, only that. And they strongly opposed the Pharisees who adhered to oral tradition, oral Jewish tradition, the teaching of the rabbis, along with the law. So that's part of why there was such a great tension between, or a conflict between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees just held to the first five books as scripture, as, the, as the, uh, what is required of us. Now, belief in the resurrection was relatively new among the Jews in the first century. It was the belief that those who die will be raised up again by God. The Sadducees rejected this belief because it was not explicitly set out in the law of Moses. The Pharisees believed it. And, of course, Jesus revealed it. And he didn't reveal it just after his resurrection from the dead, but in his ministry, like in our story this morning. The Gospel of Mark Mark helped the early church proclaim Jesus Christ within its social and political context in the first century. We shouldn't overlook that. The Gospel of Mark was written to a church. It was a church in a place, in a time, and they were dealing with things like the arguments of the Sadducees, that there is no resurrection, and the Gospel of Mark helps the church be able to um, uh, make its witness to the context it's in. Now, our text begins with an altercation. Mark makes a little comment in verse 18, and the Sadducees came to him who said that there is no resurrection. They asked Jesus a question, and it was not a neutral question, and Mark signals that to us. It was designed to make Jesus look bad and make themselves, the Sadducees, look superior. Mark makes it clear that they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead, so it was not an honest inquiry. They were contemptuous, and they scoffed at those who believed in the resurrection. Their question was intended to ridicule Jesus and everyone else who believed in the resurrection. Josephus says the Sadducees' belief was simple. The soul dies with the body. The person dies when they're dead. In other words, when they're dead, they're dead. When you die, you're dead. True to their belief that faith and practice can only come from the Torah, they asked Jesus a question based on Deuteronomy 25, right? One of those books that they recognize as scripture about leveret marriage, the marriage of the Levites. And here's what Deuteronomy says in one of those verses. It says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Now, this law was intended to provide a man with heirs in order to preserve his name and so that he can pass his property on. The Sadducees' argument based on this law was that Moses did not believe in the resurrection. Otherwise, there would be no need for the brothers to ensure a child by the dead husband's wife. Thus, the Sadducees pose a dilemma to make their case. And this is what we hear. I'll just summarize real quick in Mark. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. 
And when he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. On it goes until the seventh dies without giving her a child. The punchline is, if there is a resurrection and they are all raised, whose wife is she? It's ridiculous. That's how they've set it up. As far as the Sadducees were concerned, God raising the dead was a silly belief. It was a belief worthy of contempt and scorn. Now, I'm sure that you have met people like this who are already convinced that the Christian faith is silly and all they want to do is ridicule it. You know, they might come and present themselves as wanting to have an honest discussion with you or a a thoughtful argument uh, is they try to, you know, claim they're going to present a thoughtful argument, but really they just want to make it look silly and ridiculous. And this can be very frustrating and disturbing for us, right, to say the least. But Jesus, if you'll notice in our text, is not frustrated by his opponents. And this brings us comfort. What flabbergasts us does not flabbergast Jesus. What disturbs us does not disturb Jesus. What we find difficult to answer, Jesus does not find difficult to answer. Jesus stands up to all of his opponents who come at us. So we trust him in our debates and disputes, even if we don't always know what to say. Jesus' answer is firm, verse 24, Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. He repeats that. You're just wrong. It's just kind of funny because it doesn't seem like the normal Jesus that we hear about in the Gospels. You're wrong. He's not that dismissive, of course. He makes his point, but... Is this not the reason you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? Interestingly, Jesus goes beyond the Torah to expose the Sadducees' error. The belief that the dead become like the angels, that part of our text, and are no longer in the state of marriage was a recent belief in the first century. Jesus is willing to pick up on it, this recent belief. For Jesus, revelation is something that progresses in redemptive history. It's not all set out at once. More is added to God as God works out his salvation in history. And this is, in fact, essential to who Jesus is, right? He is the fullness of God's revelation. He reveals more than was known before. For example, he reveals that he is one with the Father and the Spirit. Or he reveals that God himself bears our sin and accomplishes forgiveness of our sins, bearing it upon himself. Jesus reveals that all things were made through him and for him. He reveals the church as God's people joined together from the Jews and all the nations. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Jesus' response also affirms the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. So Jesus uh, speaks to their, to their error um, and uses um, it try, helps them understand uh, their error, but he also refers to the resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament. Verse 28, And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses the passage about the bush? You know, there were no verses and chapters in, you know, in the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written when Jesus was uh, alive and in this conflict with the Sadducees. And the Old Testament was present. There were a couple different forms of it. But there were no chapters and verses. So how do you refer to something in, in the Old Testament? Well, you say, by the, at the bush. And they would immediately know what he's talking about. The bush, of course, is the burning bush, right? 
So Jesus used the Torah. That's in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus uses the Torah in his answer to the Sadducees because that's what they considered scripture. In the story of the burning bush, God describes himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus' argument is that because God still could still describe himself in the days of Moses as the God of the patriarchs who died before Moses, this means he still remembered them and cared for them, implying they must be alive. Now there's a tension in the Old Testament about death. On the one hand... It is simply the punishment for humanity's sin. After God created the heavens and the earth, Adam and Eve, who represent the entire human race, disobeyed God and desired to be like God. And this caused a rupture in their relationship with God and the rest of creation. God declared that they would die, and death was the punishment for humanity's sin. Originally, our soul and body worked in harmony with God's will. There was this this union between what man wanted and what God wanted. But when we chose to sin, our wills became disordered, and this disorder was mirrored in our bodies, and that led to corruption and decay. So death is understood in the scripture as a consequence of sin. As the Old Testament continues, death is viewed as the natural end. I don't mean that it's natural uh, you know, apart from what happened with Adam and Eve, but just natural is just the, the, the common end for humans. But it was never, <coughs> it's never understood as something good or a blessing. What the Israelites hoped for was a long, distinguished life, a life with comforts and many children to carry on the family name and bury the deceased. A premature death without children or a proper burial was a dreadful fate. And yet, in the Old Testament, we were told that even a long and rich life was lived in death's cold shadow. Ecclesiastes gives a sober view of our lives. It says, one fate comes to all, to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, death. In the Psalms, we hear how the Jews viewed death. They believed that death was consigned, uh, the dead were consigned to Sheol, or the pit, a place of shadow. God's power was present in Sheol, but the dead had no intimate relationship with him. The Psalms are clear that the dead in Sheol are not living in divine light. Here's Psalm 88. The psalmist cries out, For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. The Old Testament is filled with appeals against death based on this premise. God should save me from death so that I can praise him in this life right now. The prophet Isaiah writes that God held back Hezekiah's life from the pit of destruction because, and then Isaiah says, Sheol cannot thank you, death cannot praise you, those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness, the living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. So one side of the tension in the Old Testament is how death and Sheol bring an end to this life, so we need to live well now. And the Sadducees held firmly to this side of the tension. The other side of the tension in the Old Testament is God is victorious over death. So the Old Testament speaks of God swallowing up death forever, like in Isaiah 25. And God raising people from Sheol, such as in Hannah's song in 1 Samuel. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And the book of Daniel speaks of the dead awakening 
some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, the Sadducees missed this tension partly because they only considered the first five books of the Old Testament to be scripture. And as you noticed, I read from books that come later, from the writings that come later in Judaism, Isaiah, Daniel. Um, so, So how do we make sense of this tension about death in the Old Testament? Well, Jesus brings it together for us. Death is up against the power of God. Death is real. It is the end of our life because of our sin. And... It it is a serious thing to reckon with, but it's up against the power of God. Jesus says to the Sadducees, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. In the Old Testament, death is a real end to our life, but it cannot stand up to the power of God. Israel affirmed faith in the omnipotent, rescuing God of Israel, against whom not even the most formidable of enemies can stand. Well, this tension between the reality of death and the power of God comes together with Jesus Christ. Jesus showed the power of God over death throughout his ministry when he healed people, when he raised people from the dead. And we've heard these stories as we've heard the word preached from the Gospel of Mark. And of course, it was revealed in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The power of God in Jesus conquers death. Jesus' healing miracles are then many resurrections foretastes of the ultimate power that he will uh, exercise over life and death. God became man in Jesus Christ to die for us so that we who trust in Jesus may pass from death to life. So listen to these words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that would be Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, Jesus For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Out of death, God's power in Christ gives us life. It's a remarkable tension that's resolved in Jesus Christ. God is the life-giving God. That's who he has revealed himself to be. And the Sadducees and all those who think death is the end of us are wrong. We Christians are to bear witness to the life-giving God in our society. Our epistle lesson has a line in it that fits nicely with what Jesus said to the Sadducees. It's verse 14 in 1 Corinthians 6. And God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. The Apostle Paul says this to the church in Corinth to say that the life of God that comes through Jesus Christ pertains to us now. The Corinthians were doing all kinds of things that were wrong, and you can read about them in, in, uh, well, the whole letter, really. But 1 Corinthians 6 uh, speaks to the sexual immorality and other things. And so because the life of God that comes through Jesus Christ pertains to us right now, the church was not to engage in sexual immorality. That's Paul's point to the Corinthian church. The life that God gives in Jesus Christ is for now. It's not just when we die and thereafter. Our culture has been described as a culture of death. There's a proliferation of threats against human life today. And the easy examples, the low-hanging fruit, the easy examples to pick up on are suicide, abortion, and euthanasia. Suicide rates have increased in every state, especially for males and the elderly. And in 25 of our states, the rate has increased 30% 
between 1999 and 2016. The demand for abortion is powerful, as we see in the fury over the Supreme Court's decision. I ran into a fellow at a shopping center. We were actually talking about this a little bit, Friday evening prayer. But I ran into a fellow at a shopping center, and he wanted me to sign a petition, and he told me what it was. It's always good to know what you're going to sign, right? It was for defending, this is how he put it, defending reproductive health for men and women. And I said, oh, you mean abortion? And he said, yes. I told him I would not sign it. Later I thought, what about the reproductive rights for baby boys and baby girls? But it really is not about rights, is it? It's about what does it mean to be human, and is human life sacred or not? Isn't that the way it goes, that we usually think of a better answer, at least goes this way for me, I think of the better answer after the discussion. I wish I should have run back and, hey, wait. (laughs) Human life is sacred. It's set apart from all other living things. But that's not how our culture sees it. Human life is purely a biological reality, the way our culture sees it, just like animals. Sometimes, uh, our culture would say, human life must be sacrificed so others can live live well. I've heard the argument that abortion is necessary in order to help the poor and not bring children into a life of poverty. It sounds kind, doesn't it? But it begs the question, why does helping the poor have to be at the expense of the unborn? There are other ways to help the poor than taking human life. Furthermore, it's common in our culture, the culture of death, to believe that death is the end of human existence. We live our lives and we die, and that's it. We die and then we are no more. And this means that if, if you believe that, that we must enjoy ourselves and indulge ourselves right now because there's nothing to enjoy after we die. In our culture, we must testify to the, li- testify to the life-giving God. God, in his power, raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and he will also raise us to eternal life who have faith in him. More and more, our witness will be a confrontation with our culture because our society is sure of death. The power of God, however, is greater. Jesus was put to death and on the third day rose from the dead. Through Jesus Christ, the life of God entered death and emerged victorious. You might say that Christ entered this world of death and he emerged victorious. Our culture of death is wrong. Let us speak up and bear witness to the life-giving God. Let us pray. Almighty God, to whom truly to know is everlasting life, grant us so perfectly to know your Son, Jesus Christ, to be the way, the truth, and the life, that we may steadfastly follow him and adhere to his teaching that leads to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith with the creed. And pay attention to what it says about the Holy Spirit in life. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation 
down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 706, Jesus Lives and So Shall I.
this end of the month, we collect our diaconal offering. If the ushers please come forward to collect it. It is set apart by Jesus' words of institution. This is an uncommon meal. It is not like any other meal you will eat. The Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was arrested, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Until he comes. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and new life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and grace. It is our joy and our peace at all times and in all places to give thanks to you, Holy Father, Almighty, everlasting God. Thanks that we give through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We bless you for your continual care and love for every creature. We praise you for forming us in your image and calling us to be your people. We thank you that you did not abandon us in our rebellion against your love and your purpose, but sent prophets and teachers to lead us into the way of salvation. And above all, we thank you now for sending Jesus, your Son, to deliver us from the way of sin and death by the obedience of his life, by his suffering upon the cross, 
and by his resurrection from the dead. We praise you that he now reigns with you in glory and ever lives to intercede for us to be our mediator. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who leads us into truth and defends us in adversity and out of every people unites us into one holy church. And therefore, with the whole company of saints in heaven and on earth, we worship and glorify you, God most holy, and we sing with joy, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. We give thanks to you, O God, our Father, through our Savior Jesus Christ. Before he suffered, he gave us this memorial of the sacrifice until he comes again. And we do as he commands. We continue to celebrate and to rejoice. We proclaim that our Lord Jesus was sent by the Father into the world and that he took upon himself our flesh and blood and bore the wrath of God against our sin. We confess that he was condemned to die that we might be pardoned and suffer death that we might live. We proclaim that he is risen to make us right with God and that he shall come again in the glory of his new creation. And we do this now and we will do this until he comes again. Heavenly Father, show forth among us the presence of your life-giving word and Holy Spirit to sanctify us in your whole church through and along with the sacrament. Grant that all who share the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ may be one in him and may remain faithful in love and hope. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf and these grapes from many hills into one cup, grant, O Lord, that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, and we say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. God of all glory and grace, you graciously feed us who have received these gifts with the bread of life and the cup of eternal salvation. May we who have received the sacrament be strengthened in your service. We who have sung your praises tell of your glory and truth. We who have heard the greatness of your love see you face to face in your kingdom. For you have made us your own people by the death and resurrection of your Son, our Lord, and by the life-giving power of your Spirit. Amen. Our final hymn is number 388, Same Here Again, To Thy Dear Name We Praise.
Good morning. Please be seated. And uh, yeah, good morning to everybody. Uh, a lot of um, a lot of semi-familiar faces. The Neils I see, and uh, as well as some some other new faces. So please uh, make sure to uh, say hi and and uh, greet. Uh, greet each other, uh, and everybody is, of course, invited. We have snacks and coffee and things uh, in the kitchen afterward. Um, if I, I'm, I'm going to yield the floor to Mr. Kelly for... Uh, yeah. I am hoping to be able to teach the class uh, this morning. We'll uh, issue a survey shortly after we decide whether it's a good idea to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you have been praying... For my brother Scott for nearly 10 years. And those prayers have supported a beautiful testimony of faith and peace. Um, I got a call this morning from my niece that Scott died a little after 8 this morning. And uh, his family was around him, singing hymns. He had a, an hour or so of clarity where Becky could talk to him. She, she went in the bedroom, and they talked for about an hour. And, um, you know, he, they had two, two daughters and two sons. And they were all, the, the girls are married to military men. And... But they were able to come up and stay in any event this would happen. And uh, so everyone's around him. Uh, Allison, who's the second oldest, stayed up with him through the night, the nights. Um, my nephew, Evan, gave him his medication. Um, my nephew, Trevor, said, read the Psalms to him regularly. So um, just thank you. I think, not hard and fast, but funeral will likely be Friday up in here, so we'll give you more details when we learn that. Thank you. Um, uh, to s- briefly summarize for those of you uh, worshiping with us at home, um, George's brother Scott, who we've been praying for for a decade, uh, was called home this morning at about 8 o'clock, and, um, but the... Uh, the actual hours um, before that were a great blessing to him, um, and he was surrounded by his his wife and his children, uh, praying with him and singing uh, singing hymns with him, and um, just I guess gratitude expressed by George for those prayers and for how they've um, supported his family. And uh, funeral uh, plans are in the works, and presumably there'll be an email, but probably Friday in Lapeer. Um, I don't think I have any other major announcements unless someone else does. Yes, Mrs. Roberts. Uh, another another report as uh, we've been praying for uh, Joyce's friend Kathy, who also uh, passed away on Friday. Anyone else? Yes, next week. So next week we will have a uh, our fellowship meal, and so please uh, bring something and join us for that. 
And uh, please also join us, probably, uh, for Christian education. Uh, the the summer, summer curriculum um, is uh, going through some of, uh, kind of based on some of John Calvin's uh, observations about the Christian life. And uh, as so much around us is, uh, is, is changing, and there are so many things that we may wonder, kind of filters through which we should look and, and attitudes we should have and ways in which we should interact with people who disagree with us. Um, I, I found in, in reading that, that uh, and, and reading the book has, has been greatly beneficial and very timely, and so I encourage you to join uh, Mr. Kelly. Uh, we'll be leading that um, after we uh, refresh ourselves. So, Good morning to you all, and hope to see you here in, uh, in about 15 minutes for Christian education.